And hello, everyone. It is Natalie. I'm back finally uh, with a new episode. Sorry, I've been gone for a bit. It's been a little bit crazy. And now, of course, I hope you are listening to this from the safety of your home and you're with your family and hopefully just staying safe, staying healthy during this crazy time. And I hope that um, this provides a little much needed distraction from all the crazy coronavirus um, kind of madness that is out there. Um, really appreciate your listening, really appreciate you following, and really just hope that you are staying well and um, staying healthy out there mentally and physically. I'm really excited to share with you this episode today. Um, we have a really great special guest, uh, educator, filmmaker, scholar, historian, um, all, all the different kinds of skills this guy has. His, uh, his name is John Little, and he um, is actually going to be defending his dissertation tomorrow. That is on Tuesday, March 24th. So by the time you listen to this, he'll probably be Dr. John Little. Um, but we had a really great talk about his, um, his film, More Than a Word, which I'm guessing you may have seen about the mascot issue and as well around education and just different things we can do to help Native youth uh, be successful. So without further ado, here's the episode. So John, do you want to start by just telling me about kind of where you grew up and kind of what you were into as a kid? Were you into sports or were you more like a dinosaur kid? What was, what was kind of your thing? Yeah, yeah. So I guess, uh, so I'll start by, so my name's John Little. Um, I'm the co-director of a documentary called More Than a Word, uh, which is on the Washington football team. Uh, I directed it with my brother. And then uh, I'm standing around Dakota. And uh, yeah, I mean, I grew up, I was born and raised in Denver, Colorado. And uh, until I was about nine or 10, then actually moved to a, a town in South Dakota called Winter, South Dakota, and uh, it's, a, it's a border town really close to the Rosebud Reservation, so that's kind of where I grew up. Grew up, And then uh, I've been kind of back and forth between South Dakota and Minnesota the last couple of years just with school and everything else. So, And then I guess as, as far as the, the other stuff, yeah, I mean, I was, I was probably more – I was a very, like, active kid. I was very much into sports. And, uh, you know, I had, a, I had a dinosaur phase uh, when I was probably <laughs> – in, in elementary school, but I think for the most part, I've always been like really big into sports and, and a lot of other things like that. Yeah. Do you have a favorite sport? Yeah. I mean, I think so. I, I grew up in Denver, obviously. So when I was in Denver, it was hockey. Uh, oh, I was interesting. Hockey. And I think uh, I grew up, you know, a big fighting Sioux fan, which I had to like kind of rethink a right. lot as I'm making the film with, you know, now they're the fighting Hawks, fortunately, but. Uh, it was really one of those things that kind of made me start thinking through it a lot differently. And so, yeah, huge hockey fan. And then I moved to South Dakota in a small town uh, that had never really heard of hockey. And so I actually kind of switched to football, basketball, but I also really loved running. And so uh, I was a pretty active runner in high school. And then I, I ran like a, a semester in college, which uh, I realized I was not meant for the college athletics, but it was, uh, you know, I really have been active in kind of running and basically anything outdoors, anything like that. Right, right, right. What was the, what was it like just the environment moving from Denver to South Dakota? What was, um, just the kind of the culture, was it a big culture shock? I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a big culture shock. I think I grew up, you know, in a big, 
uh, town. I grew up in Denver for the first portion of my life and then kind of a suburb of Denver until for about four years. And so, I mean, just a very big community, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you don't think about in a big community or you do think about it in a big community versus a small community. And so, uh, you know, you're not as connected. You don't know your neighbors as well. And uh, there's a lot of like stranger danger, fear type things. And then right. moving to like the Midwest or South Dakota, you know, I visited growing up. I mean, my, my dad's from Standing Rock and then our Fort Yates. And then my mom was from like grew up in winter. And so we visited quite a bit growing up. And so it was a pretty big shock. I mean, I had grown up in the mountains and uh, seen a lot of that and then you move to like the plains where you can see for miles and right. now I love that and I, I really I, I I love that and I hate when I'm not in an area where I can't see for miles and miles but it was a big culture shock and I it's it, it was a really big adjustment I mean going from like hundreds of thousands of people like a town and city that's bigger than the entire state of South Dakota to moving to this town of 3,000 people. So it was a, it was a big adjustment, but, um, it was really, it was really great. And I think there's, uh, a lot of native people, the Rosebud reservations there, as I said, so, um, kind of growing up and I actually grew up in a pretty mixed, uh, family in in Denver. I mean, I think my family, uh, a lot of my family from Standing Rock moved down to, to the Denver area, like via, uh, relocation. That's actually how my dad ended up down there. And so, it's, uh, you know, Denver is a very native place if you know where to look. And so right. it was a nice adjustment to move from like Denver to, to winter where there's also a lot of native people too. That's something I definitely learned when I was talking to people about the mascots to journalists. Cause I realized like every, like every little pocket of America, there's natives to be found. You just have to kind of mm-hmm. find them. And, um, it's really, it's, that's really interesting. So was there a moment, like, did you guys, when you were younger, did you, did they talk, did you talk about your heritage a lot? Was there a moment where you're like, Oh, I'm Indian or like you realized that you were native or was it kind of just like something that was just kind of inherent and not really talked about a lot? Yeah. You know, I think, uh, so I think the ironic part is I think when, you know, when I've been, as I've gotten older, a lot of people will always say to me like, Oh, that's weird. You know, that, that must've been weird being native in Denver. And actually like it really wasn't, it was pretty normal because, uh, you know, my dad relocated down there and then ended up kind of taking a job as a bus driver at the Denver Indian center. And then my mom ended up moving down there right after college to actually direct, uh, you know, like a, their preschool program at the Denver Indian center. And, that, and that's, ended up, that's how they ended up meeting. And so, and like I said, a lot of my family ended up relocating down there. And so like, I grew up in this space in Denver that it was very normalized to be, to be native. And then, you know, my dad is a, a traditional singer. And so he does, you know, we're at powwows almost every weekend. There's powwows in the Denver area all the time. And then like the surrounding areas. And so, uh, we were, you know, like growing up, it was a very normalized thing for me. And I think, I, I kind of like looking back on my identity. It's like, you take that for granted. You don't really think about that because it's so normalized. And then I think moving to winter was when I actually kind of struggled with it. Cause there's a lot of like, you know, racial tension and things like that in that town. It's a border mm. town. Um, it's probably 90% non-native and about 10 to 10 or 10% or so uh, native. And I think there's a lot of tension there and there's a lot of like racial issues. And I think, you know, not everybody's like a racist or anything. I think sometimes it gets portrayed like that, but it, it's an interesting town to grow up in. And I think that was kind of that first moment that I realized that I was native. It was kind of like this middle school moment. I can actually kind of specifically remember it when, when I realized for the first time that I wasn't among like Colorado hippies who love Indians, right. <laughs> when I wasn't among like a lot of people at the Indian center or whatever event I was at, uh, it was kind of these moments where I started realizing that I was native, but also kind of like, 
native and that maybe not necessarily like a good thing. And so mm-hmm. you kind of start facing some of those things when you're, you're younger. And so that was something that I, I mean, I saw and I, I struggled with a lot. And so it's just interesting to see. And I mean, also growing up mixed, you know, like my mom's uh, non-native and was raised in that town. So I had a lot of family connections that way. And then, you know, my dad's full. And uh, so it's like kind of growing up half was just an interesting right. dynamic. I like think you can kind of fit into like both of those worlds a little right. bit. The whole walking in two worlds for sure. I think that is so, such a good point because it's, it's so hard. I think, especially when you're younger, like just knowing, like I've done a lot of research around identity and like knowing what identity you're in and like what situation. And I love that you brought up border towns too, because I think those often get overlooked. And like a lot of people don't think about like how they're still really kind of really scary and violent and very much not safe places for a lot of um, people of color or, you know, just in those weird areas. But that, I thought that was, that's such a good point. And it is a constant like you know and there's even stuff I felt like within the native community it's like oh well if you're not full blood then like you know some there's some people right. that kind of look down on you for that so it's yeah it's it's a really and hard I think like yeah I, I think that's like you know and I think the two worlds paradigm too is like I always kind of push back with the students I work with because uh I mean we're, we're all like walking in like various different worlds and I think like on some levels it feels like it is a two world paradigm or like, you know, it's a white or native world. But I think at the same time, you know, like when you look at it, especially with the students I see, there's so many different things that they're negotiating and like right. navigating. It's not, it's so, not a binary. It's very, right. it's very fluid. I think so often we get pushed into these binaries and like, even with our identities, like the, you know, we can be multiple things at one time and it just, it just kind of a fluid kind of, I think of it more of like a, like a wave and it's not necessarily oh, all or nothing for sure. So, right. so how did, were you always like, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get my education. How, was that something that was always kind of just, was that a given or was that something that you really kind of had to work kind of, kind of develop your kind of a love for like school, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You know I mean? I've, I've always loved, uh, I've always loved learning. And so I think, there was always part of me, but I, I realized like even just growing up, uh, like how privileged I was with a lot of things just because I, I had two parents, uh, who both had like master's degrees. And so education was something that was really kind of taught. They're both teachers as well. So, okay. um, it's, it's really pushed to, to like make you, to, I was always kind of urged or pushed to think about education. And so I think in a lot of levels, like I, I assumed I was going to go to college and I think like you can ask my mom when I was 18 and I was pretty angsty as, you know, kind of pushing back against if I wanted to go to college or not. But at the right. same time, uh, I think it was always assumed. And I've realized like that privilege as I've gotten older too, just be just with the students that I've worked with where, you know, college isn't a guarantee. Like some of them, a lot of students really want to go to college, but at the same time, uh, you know, they have to figure out so many different things, financial aid and all these other things. And I was fortunate to have two parents who had gone through that process, especially my mom, uh, who I was living with at the time, was like really helpful in a lot of those things and, and helpful in ways that like she was essentially like your financial aid's done. I, you know, things I didn't have to like worry about her right. filling out. And so I think, uh, you know, I've seen that and realized that over the years, like how fortunate I was growing up to have parents who uh, were really passionate and cared about education, but 
you know, at the same time, I think it wasn't always assumed. I think I had a lot of up and downs in college and different things like that. And I think always wanting to get like a bachelor's degree and then the graduate work kind of came more as I progressed through college. But I think um, they were definitely kind of those foundations and like developing me or like where I wanted to go and, and how far I could go. Yeah. Did you have a career specific career in mind or was it kind of just general ed uh, for you? Yeah, I mean, I think I think my my first career, if you ask my mom and uh, dad, I, I was planning on being a hockey player, and I <laughs> nice. uh, moved to winter, and then that didn't that didn't work out very well. But yeah, I think you know I've always had a passion for teaching. I, I thought I, I really enjoyed like history and other topics like that, and so I think the goal was originally to like teach high school and maybe like coach. And then I started kind of doing some of the practicum stuff where actually going into the classrooms. And, and I, I liked it, but it, I wasn't really as passionate about it as I thought I was going to be. And so I kind of started thinking, you know, it'd be really cool to teach college. And so that's kind of where that tra- trajectory kind of switched as I, as, I, as I got older. And so I think, you know, I, probably teaching has always kind of been something I really wanted to do. But uh, And coaching, I think, is something I've always wanted to do, too. And so I think that's kind of those kind of went hand in hand. And I think that's where you're growing up and you have those experiences of like sports and all these things that I was very passionate about and then kind of wanting to pass those on to other people. And so that's kind of where that came from. Yeah, that's great. That's really cool. I, Cause teaching for me was never, I mean, it was always kind of in the back of my mind, but I never really, like I never thought I really would end up doing it. I was more of like, I just loved mentoring students and mm-hmm. working with young people. And then what's kind of crazy about it is like in a PhD program, they don't really teach you how to teach unless you're in like an education program. Like if you're, it's right. funny how like the, the, how limited, and even now as we, everything moves online, it's like, people are just like, yeah, it's kind of putting a focus on back on like, oh, well, how do we actually do these things? So that's, right. I think that's really cool that you kind of had that in mind all, you know, all along. And so tell me about your um, PhD and your dissertation that's you're defending this week, right? Yeah, I'm actually, so I actually am working on my presentation today and then I'm actually presenting uh, or defending it tomorrow. And so we'll see. I'm I'm like hopeful that I can get there, but it's, it's been a little bit different. I mean, usually you're supposed to do it in person, you know, in that public portion and uh, I'm not going to do that, but it's like just having a Zoom, doing it via Zoom across you know, from most of my, most of the people I'm working with are in Minnesota and then I'm in South Dakota. And so it's, uh, it's like been interesting. It's, it's been really cool. I'm thankful that I have a really great committee that's very supportive, but, uh, yeah. And so the, the dissertation is on, uh, native uh, Vietnam veterans. So I am kind of just looking at their experiences before, during, and then after. And so I use a lot of oral histories, but then I'm also looking a lot at how, how native veterans are portrayed in like popular culture, and some of those are stereotypes, but then some of those are also like, there's a lot of truth to those, stere- to those stereotypes or not, I guess a lot of truth to like the perceptions. And so I think kind of just looking at their experiences, but then I also look at, you know, using a lot of my dad's influence from like when, uh, I mean, he still has a drum group, but uh, I, I've used a lot of music from him and, th- and thought about different things through that. And so kind of just looking at the ways that people have also like honored native veterans. And I think, mm you can't go to a powwow or some sort of native event without them honoring some sort of veteran or doing some sort of thing. And so I think as I kind of have been exploring it, it's been really crazy to see just how interconnected uh, military service is in in the world and and, in native culture, I guess. I think it's, and most people just kind of assume it's like military service overseas or, you know, protecting the homeland on front or something like that. But 
there's a lot of different ways that native culture or power culture or military culture has been kind of incorporated into to like everyday life for native people. And so I think that's kind of looking at those and seeing, you know, native music was banned and illegal in the 1930s and forties, but they used, they kind of premised it under patriotism to say, well, we need to honor these veterans when they return home. And if you don't let us, that's unpatriotic. And so kind of looking at how native people strategically took uh, military culture and like military service and like used it to continue their language and culture and all these other things. And so kind of just looking at a lot of different things like that. Yeah, that's really great. And that's such an under, like, no, like people just don't understand how big a role of, um, you know, being in the service for a lot of native people has been. And like, it's just such a huge popular for being like the smallest population in the, in the state. So we have definitely overrepresented ourselves given in the service side. And, um, I think that's such a cool, um, topic. I'm really excited to see what, what comes of that. And I was just thinking, I was like, we should do a film at some point about that. Cause that's something I've thought about a lot too, is, um, getting that, getting those stories on film. I mean, I think, what I do love about technology is how a lot of tribes now are really working to like kind of capture these oral histories and like even digitize and do video and that kind of thing. So that's really cool. So right. yeah, did, that's good. I mean, that's a good point. I, I think, uh, so, I mean, I started this with a master's thesis about seven or eight years ago. Um, and when I first started, I, I had access to about 12 to 14 oral histories. And then I found a few more here and there. Most of them were transcribed and actually have the oral histories, but then, you'd find them kind of pieced together, but then it's just the 50th anniversary of the Vietnam war was just recently. And so Ken Burns and like PBS and all these yeah. other organizations are really like leading this charge. And so, I mean, I could do an entire dissertation just on oral histories at this point. And I didn't have that, you know, the like eight years ago. And I think so eight years later, you're seeing all this like really amazing stuff coming out. And I'm really, it's really exciting because we need to collect those stories. Uh, and I think that's, that's really important to so I'm really, really glad people are doing that. Yeah, absolutely. So how did you, how did the more than a word film come about? Yeah. I mean, that's, so that was kind of just a side project that I was working on or just kind of talking through with my brother. So my brother, Ken, uh, Ken little is a graphic designer. He lives in Kansas city and, um, just really does a lot of stuff with like mixed media, graphic arts and, and different things like that. And he's a really, uh, he's someone I've always looked up to. I mean, he's, he's 10 years older than me. And so we were pretty far apart growing up. I mean, we, uh, used to always joke about like kind of just being, we were both basically going through like our teen angst years when, when each other were kind of trying to reach out to each other. And so I think, yeah. uh, the film was just kind of some ideas we were kind of throwing around and we really originally wanted to do like a bunch of short short like 10 minute videos and I think one of them we wanted to do was on mascots and so we kind of started filming for that and then really uh, along the way it was one of those things we were just self-funding we got rejected from every grant we've ever uh every grant we ever applied for I've never actually won a grant for film (laughs) so that's crazy that's amazing yeah I mean it's funny I was someone asked me to be on a panel recently and said hey would you talk about like you know, applying for funding. And I'm like, I don't uh, think I would be good for that because I you want to talk about not getting funding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can tell you what not to do, but yeah. yeah. And so it was just kind of a project that started out with my brother and I and just kind of thinking through ideas. We thought we were going to do like a short 10 to 20 minute video and then actually and put it on YouTube. And, you know, we always used to joke too, that like 50 people are going to watch it right. and five of them are going to be my mom from a different computer. And so right. <laughs> it's, uh, 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think it just kind of started as that as we wanted to kind of challenge how people were seeing or perceiving native people. And I think that goes into like all sorts of research. I can see that with veterans on like, you know, people see mascots and they don't want to look at native veterans as real people. And so I think like we kind of started thinking about it through different lenses like that. And then actually like started kind of filming and doing some stuff on our own. We, we lucked out. We went to the, the Minneapolis rally in I think 2014 and or 2014 or 2015. And uh, we, we drove up there. We didn't really know what to expect. And then we ended up kind of, we both sat next to Charlene Teeters and she connected us to like Tara Hauschka and Greg yeah. Deal. And, and so it was one of those films, like as we were working on, it really felt like it was meant to be made because we kept every time we were ready to quit and stop, uh, we like something would happen to like, to get us to where we were at. And I mean, I think there was a moment when I actually, like we, we got rejected from our, the last time we applied for funding, uh, we, we thought we were going to get it cause we had talked to the people and they were seemed interested and I got off the airplane cause I was going to a conference and I got like the rejection notice and I, I called my brother and I was like, I'm done. Like we're, you know, we, and we got in like a huge argument and, and we're actually like, we're like, yeah, this is stupid. I don't know why we're wasting all this time on it. And then at that conference I met the person who ended up distributing our film wow. and, and I almost didn't go to talk to her cause I was just like, I'm done. I'm tired of this. It's really exhausting. And yeah. um, I met her, someone had recommended, uh, like the work we were doing and we showed her the trailer and she was like, yeah, you know, like give me your email and we'll reach out. And I thought, yeah, I'm never going to hear from them. And then like a week later they reach out and they're like, let's like, how can we help you get this film made? And so it was one of those things that like every time we were ready to quit the film kind of felt like it got something happened to like get it, help get it done. And so I think it's been kind of cool to see that, but it was really just, yeah, it started out as just kind of my brother and I kind of thinking about mascots and wanting to like challenge those things. And I think at the time, Washington, like the Washington football team, that's the most obvious, obvious like national one that people like can see or recognize. And so I think that's why we kind of chose that. And it's at the time in the media in 2014, it was really big in the news. Right. And so I think that's, that's really kind of how we chose them. Yeah, it's it's funny how it's kind of ebbed and flowed over the years, but that was definitely a definitely a hot point. And I have loved seeing I saw your film at a couple conferences and just other, you know, other events and it's so awesome every time and seeing just what I love to watch people watch when like when I watch films, mm-hmm. I love to watch people other people watch and it's so cool to see people's like real like visceral reactions and I don't think people realize either how much work goes into it, not just the making of the film but like you said the distribution and funding and just the networking piece that just is so exhausting (laughs) that I think often people overlook and I wanted to ask you too like for you in a perfect world would it mascots be like it wouldn't just be the Washington team right it would be like at every level high school you know pro college is that kind of what because I get asked all the time like when I talk about mascots they're like well what's the solution and I'm like there's not really an easy one honestly but I was curious of like what your thoughts are when you get asked that yeah yeah no I mean I think uh I I personally like think that I would just like to see all mascots gone I mean I think it's 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 only holding us back at this point I think uh you know wherever you go if you go to a high school in like Ohio who has like no native students but then they're celebrating this really stereotypical problematic uh, mm-hmm. and, a, and a lot of times they have stories or whatever histories that they're tied to with it. But I think like they're not really celebrating native people. And I, and I think 
that's kind of what I'm just ready for it to like all be done. I think when we first started the film, I had kind of thought maybe like, you know, you could make some cases for different things, but I'm kind of just ready for them all to be done. And I think that includes tribal schools. I think I, I've gotten some pushback from some native people because, you know, not all native people are in favor of changing mascots and that's, that's their right. You know, if they want to like have a mascot to celebrate that. But I think that's, one of the things that you need to, that's so difficult in like making people think critically about this is it's so ingrained in our culture. You know, these mascots have been around for over a century. And so I think people are so used to seeing that and don't really know any different that that's kind of what they're choosing to, to use. And I, and I mean, a good example of that was like, I was a fighting Sioux fan growing up and I didn't right. really think any differently of it. And then I go to like a game and I'm like, you see people yelling, like kill the Indians and wearing headdresses and all this stuff. And it's just, you were that you know it's like those moments where you're like wow this is not really about honor this is about like mm. controlling an identity and like controlling native people and denying them their right and i mean you could argue all these other deeper analogies of like it's denying them you know if they don't look like human beings and they don't have a, a claim to their land and, and different mm. things like that and so i think that's where i'm, I'm at i mean I, I totally fully recognize i've i've met a lot of places been to a lot of places with the film that we see, you know, there's a lot of native people that have mascots or their communities have mascots. And I think on one hand, you know, I, I, I want to challenge that or get them to think about it differently. But on the other hand, it's like, that's their sovereign, right? Like if they want to choose to do that. And I think that a good example of that, there's a, a school in, in Minnesota that, you know, their logo is a, a native mascot, but it's been designed by a tribal member every year. Like the community and the school is predominantly native every year. They do certain ceremonies to like kind of start the seasons and so, I mean, they're like really okay with that. And I think that's a situation where it's like, that's not my right to come in. That's not my community to come in and say like, right. you need to change this mascot. And so I think I would love to like talk with people and just kind of, you know, make like tell them my side of the story and like have them kind of think critically about it. But at the same time, like that's their mascot, that's their tradition. And if they want to incorporate that into their culture, it's, you know, that's, that's their right. And so I, I am always kind of careful to kind of like walk that fine line where I'm like, I don't want it to sound like I'm telling all native people to, to change their part, part of their way too. Cause that's kind of how they've made a living or however. And so I think, but in, in all honesty, I, I think we need to, at some point we need to get rid of all of them sooner than later, because I think even if there are a native school, they're kind of really pushing like the, it just is only opening doors for like non-native communities to kind of, you know, stereotype or do all these other things that kind of portray native people in a, in a negative light. Yes, absolutely. And that's what, that's what's so tricky too, is that when you have native people who, and I, I get it because like they, they identify with these things because they don't have anything else to identify with. Right. Like they don't have right. any other, that's the only representation that they see of themselves. And even as, you know, cartoonish as it might be. And, you know, I, I thought when in my high school we had the same thing. It was around 2005 when the NCAA order came about. And so people were coming to my high school and interviewing us and being like, well, why aren't you guys going to change? And we're like, well, we're all Native and we're, we're, <laughs> we, were the, we were the Braves. And so and when you're in a community that's majority Native, you're not having people question your Nativeness. Unless, right. But when you're in an area that's like 
not highly, it's more, you know, not, not a ton of natives around. And all they know is like Washington, you know, Washington team. And that's what they think of, you know, and that's what they kind of, que- then the, they question you. It was like, well, you don't look like that. So it's, it's so tricky and so many um, different and it's, and you, you can't t- tell people what to do. Right. And so I think that uh, too often though, there is this kind of guise of like, oh, we're, we're, we're educating people about it, but they're really not. And so I think what you right. said about like really making people think critically about it and have these com- bigger, deeper conversations is definitely much, much needed. So that's, that's awesome. And I like, what did, was there a lot of, um, was there a lot of kind of, was there kind of um, a lot of craziness after the film came out or um, I'm guessing you probably still hear from people all the time about, about it. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that's, like, the crazy part is, uh, you know, even asked the people, are you going to make, like, a one-on, like, mascots more in general? And, I, you know, like, I, I have, like, loved every opportunity and, like, moment that we've got. It's been, I've got, you know, Ken and I have gotten a tour, like, the United States. I mean, it's screened in Canada and London and, like, Germany. And so it's just, like, places that I've never even been. And so it's it's been really cool to see that. And, um, you know, I think we were kind of surprised. I think we thought we were going to get more pushback from like fans, but I think that one of the things we tried to do strategically with the film was make it more educational instead of just kind of in your face, like change the name, change the name. And so we were kind of hoping to actually make it something that people could watch and then have a conversation about and like kind of think critically about. And I think that's, we were very strategic in that. And I think some people that when we were making the film were like not happy, they wanted us to kind of make it more in your face but I think that really turns people off. And I right. think you have to get someone to watch the film the whole way through. And so I think, you know, I think about like Michael Moore, anytime he makes a film, people just write it off uh, that are like more conservative. People are just going to write it off because they're like, it's a Michael Moore film. And like, we didn't right. want people to, to write it off. Like, I'm like, you know, watch the film and then we'll have a conversation about it. And like, if you don't think differently, that's fine. And, and I also understand like these processes are like something it can't be undone, you know, while watching a like 70 minute film too, I think. Yeah. And one of the good examples of that is one of the people in the film, uh, Ian Washburn, who's, he's non native and he grew up like a Washington fan. And he actually like, you know, one of the things we were trying to figure out how to do this in the film and we didn't end up doing it was kind of showing his own process to like what, what it took for him to get, like you're seeing him at the end when he's like all into it. He's like changed the name and he gets out there and he protests it. And he's like, it's, it's amazing to see all that but I have like talked to him multiple times and I, I know his whole process was, you know, he's 18. He doesn't think they need to change it. He thinks it's honoring him. He, he tells me this story about having a native friend and like, you know, his native friend, this is like the first time his native friend tells him, you know, like this is racist. You need to change it. And you need to like stop being a fan. And Ian was kind of like, you know, I, I kind of wrote him off. And then right. the next process is like, he kind of starts thinking about it a little bit deeper when like they're protesting at the Super Bowl, And I think 92. And so then he kind of starts thinking about it a little bit more and the court case. And so, I mean, and then eventually he just realized one day when he was like looking at this picture of like him and his nephew uh, like, wow, you know, this is like, I'm teaching my nephew how to like mm. use a, a race of people. And so that was like a, you know, like a 15 or like 20 year process right. for like Ian to like undo that. And so, um, I, you know, I would love to try to figure out some way to show that in like a short film or a short piece sometime. Yeah. But I think like, that's kind of where like, we really wanted it to be educational. And so I think I, I'm not expecting people to watch it and be like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm done. I'm like, 
you know, John and Ken just, just taught me and like, I'm ready to like stop. And I think like some people might be like that. Some people maybe think about it critically, but I think more people are going to think about it a year or two years, three years after they watch the film. And maybe that's when they, they kind of have that aha moment. But I think, um, so that's been the cool part is, and we've had people come up and, I, and tell us, you know, like I, I changed my mind after that. And I, and so I think it's been cool to hear that's that. Awesome. Um, I think the, the nice part was the educational portion was like, we didn't get as much pushback. Uh, I was waiting for, I mean, we got some interesting, you know, like not really necessarily threats, but just like some weird, like people on social media that just have to challenge everything you tweet right. or whatever. But yeah. I think we've gotten a little bit of pushback on that. But, uh, for the most part, I think like, since we've been trying to be kind of educational versus just in their face, I think we've gotten a lot of people who've thought about it critically and, and ultimately kind of changed. And so I think we'll have to see like what's next. I think we're kind of thinking we're getting kind of antsy and like wanting to do like another film. But, uh, I also, you know, there's so many films that we need in Indian country and so many, like so much research and different things. And so I, I, I would love to like be a part of a project for like another mascot film, but I think, uh, Ken and I have kind of thinking about other things that kind of put us out of that realm and they kind of in a different different educational source and so we're kind of thinking about some different ideas right now but we'll we'll have to see yeah no and that's funny because like i i was one of the people that was you know i yeah, grew up in the res and i was like i always said well we have bigger issues than that and i saw so many of my friends and family that were fans of these teams too you know and i was just like mm-hmm. we and we our own high school and so i was always like well we have bigger issues to deal with you know that was always my thing and i would always argue that and it took me till i was like my mid-20s to be like this is cycle. It all plays into the system, systematic racism and the systematic erasure of our people. Like it's just, it, it, it takes a long time. And so it's, it's just not, it's not an easy, I tell everyone all the time, like they ask me to lecture, come into class and talk about it. And I'm like, I could do a whole semester on this topic. Like it's, right. it's just, there's so many layers to it. And I, I do think you guys were super effective and not being too controversial, like not being too like, in your face, like you're making the, you know, trying to white guilt everyone, but also Mm -hmm. make it kind of provocative. And so that, that, yeah, that's awesome. I'm really excited that you guys are kind of thinking about what's next too. So final thing I'll, I'll leave you kind of leave with is, um, I know you work a lot with students and younger people and interns and um, kind of pursuing higher education. And, you know, there's that, that kind of um, kind of urban legend that natives get free education, which is, completely not true. Um, not all natives can, you know, it, the majority of natives are just like any other student and have to get, you know, assistance. And, um, so what, what kind of advice do you give to students who are, you know, looking at higher ed or looking at kind of advancing and, um, just kind of expanding their learning and, um, outside of high school? What, what do you feel like is kind of the best advice you could give? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so I, so I do, so I direct like a summer program and I actually work with 32 students who are going into their freshman year in college every year. And, uh, they're, they're all, a majority of them are most of the time, 90, 99% native students from, uh, native communities. And I think that varies from whether it's like, you know, like an urban area, like rap, we get a lot of students from rapid city, but then we also get a lot of students from like South Dakota reservations and reservations throughout the nation. And so like, right. they all have different unique experiences where they're coming from. And I think, the biggest advice that we tell them is kind of focusing on them with like time management and kind of helping them get a plan for what college is going to look like. And that's what our our program is designed to be a first semester for them. So they're taking uh, four college classes and they're getting 12 college credits and they're kind of, it's, it's, 
my wife likes to call it a soft landing into college. And so like, they're kind of getting prepped and prepared, but I think, no, that's the so biggest important. Thing, yeah. Yeah. And I think, so the biggest thing we do with them is just really focus on kind of getting them prepared for what college is going to look like. And I think, uh, as far as like advice, I mean, it's, that's like, there's so many things, but I think just kind of really being there for students and like whatever they need. And I think just telling them you're there for that. You know, I think we, we have all sorts of students who are coming from, you know, some students who are coming from like better, better families and some students who have like no families. And so I think, uh, really just like being there, being support services for them. And I think I'm really worried with like all this coronavirus stuff that it's going to end up impacting our numbers because I know, you know, the boarding schools are closing and like all these other places are closing and they have kind of a controversial history, but at the same time, some students are choosing to go to those communities or those schools because they have nowhere else to go. And so I think, uh, it's a really, like, I'm really worried about like our, our students like this next year, but I think at the same time, like just having that plan, like you got to figure out where you want and you can never start too early. That's another thing we stress with students. Yeah. So, uh, we're potentially like, we're starting a college fair next fall. And I think we're trying to push students who are like sophomores and juniors to really start thinking about it because it's, it's, it's one of those things I didn't think about it until like my senior year, you know, maybe like December, January. Um, and I, I think that's like almost too late in the game for students. Yeah. If they want to like a really, you know, like a top Ivy league school that's passed their deadlines already, that's passed a lot of scholarship deadlines already. And so I think just like trying to figure out some kind of game plan and, and like never being afraid of like where like you want to go. Like if you want to go to Harvard or Yale or an Ivy league school, like just dream big, like you can get there. I, I mean, yeah. uh, and so I think just, and, and I also like another thing we stress too is sometimes like just coming up with realistic options too. Like if that's not attainable, if, you know, not everybody can go to an Ivy league school, but you can still get a great education, like at your local, like tribal college, you know, like a community college, there's a lot of other like avenues and, and trying to figure out what's going to be kind of smartest for you financially and all these other things. And so we work with them on a lot of stuff like that, but I, I think that's, that was kind of a lot of advice and wrapped up into a lot of different things, but it's, no, uh, yeah. That's so. great. That's exactly what I was thinking. And like, it is, there's not one experience that's right, but there's so many opportunities and there's so many ways. I think that, you know, students or younger people can be successful. What I love about athletics is because, you know, usually if you're going to school to play a sport, you have kind of that ingrained community of your team, right? Or, and so that, yeah. yeah, And so that I think is a really big, even though I still think that our numbers should be so much higher. And that's one of my big, big passions is helping athletes, especially kind of realize that. And now being at a division three, I've seen kind of the passion at this level and I've kind of just been blown away by it. And I'm just like, yeah, let's get some more natives on the division three level. And, you know, that's, it, it, it kind of helps you kind of foster that community. And I think that so many of the students really need, but, um, that's, that's, that's so great. And I yeah. am so excited to see what's next for you. And, um, thank you so much for your time. And I'll be sure to reach out by the time people listen to this. She'll probably be Dr. John Little. So <laughs> yeah. that's super exciting. Yeah. That's super yeah, exciting, that's... but yeah. And we'll have to have you back on to talk more about future projects and kind of what's next. Cause I think, um, we'll have a lot of both have a lot of exciting stuff to keep sharing. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Thanks, John. Talk to you soon. All right. Okay. Take care. Bye.
hard to make life great. Quit a sit there and wait, quit a sit there and wait. Not a piece of cake, but you can create a new life that will never take. You out of poverty, it's never too late. Life will come at you fast, life will come at you fast. fast. Fast, 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 fast,